0: Good morning and welcome to rising our coverage of the election results and fallout continues today so we're going to be discussing everything having to do with 2022 midterms. Brianna what specifically are we getting into next? Well our rising panel will join later to discuss a brewing
1: fight inside the GOP as several members vie for house leadership. Plus we'll discuss some new Russia Ukraine updates with the Quincy Institute's Dr. Trita Parsi. But first President Biden appeared triumphant while speaking to reporters yesterday after Democrats managed to stave off the predicted red wave on Election Day. Perhaps feeling a somewhat newfound confidence, the commander-in-chief had this to say about uh, when pushed on his job performance thus far.
0: 75% of voters say the country is heading in the wrong direction despite the results of last night. What in the next two years do you intend to do differently? Uh, to change people's uh, opinion of the direction of the country, particularly as you contemplate a run for president in 2024?
2: Nothing, because they're just finding out what we're doing. The more they know about what we're doing, the more support there is. Do you know anybody who wants us to get rid of the change we made on prescription drug prices and raise prices again? Do you know anybody who wants us to walk away from building those roads and bridges and, and the Internet and so on?
1: Later, Biden made his strongest public commitment yet to running for re-election in 2024.
2: When I announce, if I announce, my intention is that I run again. But I'm a great respecter of fate. And uh, this is ultimately a family decision. I think everybody wants me to run, but we're going to have discussions about it. My guess is it'll be early next year we make that judgment. Two-thirds of Americans in exit polls say that they don't think you should run for re-election. What is your message to them, and how does that factor into your final decision about whether or not to run for re-election? It doesn't.
3: What's your message to them? To those two-thirds of
2: Americans? Watch me.
0: (laughs) I said it all along, and I will say it again. Joe Biden will be the Democratic Party's candidate for president in uh, the next election I cycle. I mean,
1: is there something to this Biden approach? He's asked what he would do differently, what what the Democrats are going to do differently going forward? He says nothing. <laughs> he's he's asked, "Do you care, you know, about the polls that say that people don't want you to run again?" He says, "No." And then he oversees what is a historic kind of success in terms yeah. of midterms for uh, a sitting president. Uh, you know, the opposite party. Like yeah. normally you lose on the average of 27 seats. Democrats are only down 8 right now. Is he right?
0: At, at the end of the day, it's about results. It's about delivering. It's about winning. And this is a huge win. It's just a huge It's a huge win for him, for him specifically, despite all of the polling suggesting that voters were very concerned, very spooked about the state of the economy, ha- very uncertain about Joe Biden and, and his age and everything else going on. At the end of the day. They 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 still voted by and large for democratic policies, or so they did not vote for Republican figures. Near, to nearly the extent we would have expected historically, or based on, on these conditions, I liken this sort of press conference. So you're a House of the Dragons fan. This I am. was his, uh, the old king, Viserys, stumbles into the uh, the throne room in uh, the eighth episode. You know he, he's been on his, he's been out, he's dying. He picks his crown off the ground. He sits himself down in the Iron Throne and he says, "Okay, we're going to resettle this succession matter. Everyone has to reswear fealty to me." That's what it was. Yeah, but we know how that ends. Well,
1: it ends bad. But, uh... It is badly. Look, so I have mixed feelings about this because you know, I, I my sympathies obviously lead from, from a policy perspective toward the Democrats. I am concerned though that Democrats are stealing valor, as it were, from abortion, and mm-hmm. that so much of the success here really was about people being afraid of Roe. Young people and single women voters, and particularly turning out with overwhelming preference for the Democratic Party, seems to have carried them across the finish line and. Single-handedly held but that off is not the, that
0: do, that is not an unexpected result whatsoever. Like, well, it, of course, young people are going to vote. Young people always vote. Well, no, that's in record not true. We've seen we've
1: seen unpre- the we have unprecedented turnout in young voters, uh, the highest numbers since 2018. So it's not just that young well, it was two people. two cycles ago. Yeah, but it's not just that young people are turning out for Democrats. It's that yeah. they actually did turn out in high numbers. And if that continues to be a trend, of course, that puts Republicans in a, in a difficult spot. But in all likelihood, these things ebb and flow. And I don't think that Democrats should get too comfortable with the idea that they're safe or that this is about the power of Joe Biden as opposed to these circumstances that keep
0: falling into his lap. Well, no party should ever get too comfortable. At, but And Republicans are not giving... Young people, any reason to vote for them, and that's uh, that's definitely an issue. I was seeing uh, Laura Ingram brought that up on her show last night, I think, or I saw a clip of it this morning, and she was saying, "Look, um, we are we, we do not have a coalition that is large enough right now. We need to win voters outside our coalition." And and you know, she didn't say anything substantive about what that means policy wise, right. but I, th- I think the implication very much is some of this hard um, social conservative stuff, like. Abortion, probably some other things. Some of the the trans I'm sorry, the kids do not care about your
1: drag races. The the single women and the young people who carried the Democrats over the finish line on Tuesday love a drag brunch. like nothing else in the world. And so they have to find a different line of attack. We were talking a little yeah. bit earlier in the makeup room about the things that everybody universally yeah. hates, Comcast, antitrust. There are a lot of you know, true villains out there in the world that if Republicans really wanted to focus on, they could. But I do think that there's a diminishing returns on some of this culture war stuff.
0: Yeah. Well, President Biden, of course, didn't miss the opportunity to deliver a series of rhetorical jabs at his political arch nemesis,
2: Donald Trump. Let's watch that. How do you reassure them if that is the reason for their questioning, that the former president will not return, that his political movement, which is still very strong, uh, will not oh, yeah? once again take power in the United <laughs> States? <laughs> well, um, who do you think would be the tougher competitor, Ron DeSantis or former President Trump? And how is that factoring into your decision? It'll be fun watching them take on each other. <laughs> All right.
0: Online betting markets now give Florida Governor Ron DeSantis the advantage to take the White House in 2024 even over Trump. Meanwhile, the former president spent his Wednesday fervently fighting allegations that Tuesday midterm represented a blowout. Uh, represent a blow, rather, to the MAGA movement. He told Fox News Digital, quote, there is a fake news narrative that I was furious. It is just the opposite. The people I endorsed did very well. I was battling 98 point, batting 98.6% in the primaries and 216 to 19 in the general election. That is amazing. We had tremendous success. Why would anything change? So there, there you go. There's your brain on Trump. So look, um, I-, I can't disagree with Biden on that
1: one. I also uh, have a selfish desire to see mm-hmm. them go up against each other but on the other hand of things the same the, that 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 tee up concerns me for the same reason that the democrat successes on tuesday concerns me a little bit which is that it will be a conversation about the theatrics of it all it'll be a non-substantive conversation and we we'll, won't have any push to talk about the substantive issues that are still unresolved same with the joe biden scenario winning is is, is good broadly speaking, for the possibility of Democrats actually enacting beneficial policies. But the reality is they have declined to do so, not just because of obstruction in Congress, mm-hmm. but because of choices Joe Biden has made. And I think the student debt cancellation um, is a glowing example of that. So many young people, I think, really did turn out because of the lore of getting their debt canceled. But the way Joe Biden has gone about this made it maximally possible for people to obstruct what they've actually from being. I think we're going to talk
0: more uh, in another segment specifically about that. Uh, the only other thing I wanted to bring up here is uh, Republicans have really ruined, they've obviously ruined this chance, but the next next elections will also have a lot of Senate seats at risk for Democrats, where Republicans, again, just because of the nature of the map, will have the opportunity for pickups. If they had cleaned up the way they were, the way the most favorable uh, projection was, if they'd cleaned up this time, they could have gotten to sixty next time, mm. and they could have, and they could have had President DeSantis, uh, House of Representatives that's Republican with Speaker, a Republican Speaker. Sixty in the Senate and a, and a Republican majority Supreme Court—that would have been the most, uh, the most leeway that any political party would have had to enact whatever their vision is since FDR. More so, honestly, the, the most in the most in over a hundred years. And that chance will not materialize yeah, because of what happened on Tuesday. And
1: I think the specter of that is exactly why abortion was such a strong argument this time around, because you've got members of your own party flirting with the idea of a national abortion ban and Mm -hmm. that kind of power and that kind of um, legislative push is not what the overwhelming
0: majority of Americans want. Mm. Well, we've got more election coverage coming up next. Stay tuned for that. Well, we wanted to bring you some updates regarding the election. The Georgia Senate race between Democrat Reverend Raphael Warnock and Republican Herschel Walker is indeed heading to a runoff. Neither candidate is projected to receive the majority support needed to win the seat. And the runoff election will take place on December 6th.
1: Meanwhile, Nevada's Clark County says ballot counting for the Senate race between Republican Adam Laxalt and Democrat Catherine Cortez Masto will go into the next week, as will counting for major Senate and gubernatorial races in Arizona. This comes after Senate candidate Blake Masters and gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake sued over ballot tallying in Maricopa County. The this uh, the outcomes of these races will ultimately determine which party controls mm-hmm. the Senate.
0: So the situation we're in now is that we have these three undecided races, um, and if you so we've had a flip, uh, we, we had the, the Dems have had a pickup in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. If Republicans picked up in Nevada, that would undo that, mm-hmm. and then uh, it looks like. And it looks like that might happen. It looks like Arizona does not look is not looking great for Blake Masters right now, so that would be a democratic hold. Mm-hmm. That could change, but let's assume that's a democratic hold. Then we just comes down again to this runoff in Georgia. Mm-hmm. That will be that will be the ball game. But for Georgia to matter, Republicans have to have to flip Nevada, which uh, based on what I'm looking at seems um, very much possible, but not, but not at all for certain. We're apparently going to be still counting these ballots. I think in both these states, for a while, which is deeply frustrating, obviously for uh, yeah. for the rest of the country and private and for voters in the, those states. And to be which fair, is there was leading, a lot of
1: leading to some you know skeptical skepticism from certain members in the Republican Party about what's going on there. And obviously, in yeah. this kind of climate, whether look, I think there's a lot of reasons to be skeptical across the political spectrum. We've seen. Um, you know, since 2000, a lot, uh, 2016 rather, a lot of yeah. Democrats making claims about whether or not elections were stolen. Republicans have been making these sorts of claims, and any kind of delay like, we saw progressives making these claims around Iowa in 2020, uh, when Pete Buttigieg claimed victory there uh, after there was some voting tallying mess ups. Um, And it's not necessarily good in an environment where there's so much um, skepticism about the nature of our democracy for there to be these kinds of delays. Well,
0: and I, you know, as an avowed enemy of government incompetence, um, what is going on? Yeah, (laughs) like get it together, people. Um, This this it shouldn't be election month. It shouldn't stretch into uh, you know the rest of. We need to know. <laughs> we need yeah, Glenn to know. Greenwald's
1: been making some great points about how efficient vote counting uh, happened in countries. Brazil and other places that we kind of look down <laughs> the end of our nose at, mm-hmm. um, as as our pre- former president described we have it a, you know, we have countries.
0: A, we're starting to have a robust history. Yeah. of uh, The 2000 election, which mm-hmm. people, which now seems so long ago, and maybe people have put that out of mind given all the other difficulties and all the, the claims in 2016 and 2020, that was a true, that was a historic like, world history screw-up of, uh, of the election system, not of voters, of of, yeah. of the people who designed the ballots. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the one, the butterfly one that causes you to vote for Pat so, Buchanan so when you want to vote for Al Gore. So many people
1: hanging chads for Halloween the next year. <laughs> 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 yeah, it, it, it's, a tough, it's a tough situation. Hopefully it will be worked out uh, sooner rather than later. Um, but it certainly is good for uh, cable news broadcasters.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, it lets us keep doing the who, who will win for a... Uh, couple more days yeah um, well
1: in Wisconsin Republican Ron Johnson defeated Democrat Mandela Barnes in one re-election securing Republicans most vulnerable seat in the Senate. Johnson spent the last few months of the race critiquing Barnes as soft on crime, specifically for his support of abolishing cash bail.
0: In Texas, Democratic Representative Vicente Gonzalez defeated Republican Representative Myra Flores in her re-election bid for Texas's 34th Congressional District. That's a race we paid good amount of attention to here uh, as we discussed, you know, Hispanic voters turning to the GOP. Flores had won that seat in a special election earlier this year, but is not going to hang on in a tweet yesterday she said, the red wave did not happen. Republicans and independents stayed home. Do not complain about the results if you did not do your part. So this is an interesting pushback to a lot of what we've had guests talk about on the show. Yeah.
1: Fascinating. I mean, i got to admit that so much of this election result is destabilizing for me. And it's a, I think it's a good cautionary tale mm-hmm. for how disconnected some of the punditry can be from the reality on the ground. The way, the inevitability with which so yeah. many commentators spoke about the direction of the Latino vote. Her victory, Maya Flores's victory, being seen as a proof positive that the Democrats have basically failed Latino voters, which I would argue they have. I think both parties haven't really been meeting the needs of various communities in this country, yeah. if not all communities yes. in this country outside of the the 1%. But this... Is, are we going to get a similar kind of commentary here about how Republicans aren't able to be in touch with Latino voters? And I, I really do hope there is more investigative reporting on the ground that yeah. gets to the bottom of how you can have these kind of flip-flops in such quick succession. Well, how long was she in, five months?
0: Yeah, how, how, but we, it does have to acknowledge, uh, what has Ron DeSantis done right? Because mm. he has brought Latinos mm-hmm. into the fold in Florida, winning in Miami-Dade, winning virtually everywhere in the state. Um, so what is he doing right, or what, or what is unique about Latinos in Florida? That's Obviously the, question. the Cuban that's the question, connection it's uh, the Disdain for, an especial disdain for uh, for political socialism, something of that nature perhaps. So, some, um,
1: something of that nature. And I also think, especially with Latino voters, there is not enough of a conversation about how health care uh, impacts their voting. Hmm. This was a huge issue for Bernie in Nevada. It's how he got 70% of the Latino vote. It's how he got the culinary union to support him, rank and file to support him, even though culinary union leadership, which is huge in the state, went yeah. for Joe Biden. And as I listened to some testimonials, um, Um, from uh, on the ground on Tuesday, especially in Nevada and more Latino-dominant parts of the country, I heard people extemporaneously bringing up healthcare issues quite frequently. And you heard it from um, Biden in a clip that we played earlier uh, at the top of the show, uh, when he talks about what we should be doing differently going forward, and he says nothing. He goes on to say, we need to make sure people know what we've already done with respect to bringing down healthcare costs. And I think that he's right to emphasize that. We just came out of a pandemic people are still feeling that very strongly. And Latino voters are the most underinsured population in the country. Although right
0: now in Nevada, if this holds, and again, it's too close. Adam Laxalt is at 49.4% with 436,000 votes. Catherine Cortez Masto, his Democratic opponent, Latina, um, trailing right now with 47% of the vote, 421,000 votes. This is according to NBC News. And this is, I think this is this is 84% of the total. Yeah. So.
1: Well, another thing about Cortez Masto is that she did not, I, I'm not exactly sure what her health care mm-hmm. messaging has been like, but she is a much more moderate Democrat who was one of the ones that was very antagonistic to student debt cancellation. Mm-hmm. So to the extent that that was a real pull for younger voters that swung overwhelmingly Democrat, she and Tim Ryan both, are in a real struggle bus, in part because they rejected the popularity of that program.
0: Hmm. Well, we're still going to talk about that more <laughs> in, in, I think, the next second We'll have more rising right after this. Stay with us.
1: President Joe Biden had this to say about Twitter CEO Elon Musk's relationships with other countries.
2: I think that Elon Musk's cooperation and/or technical relationships with other countries uh, is worthy of being looked at whether or not he is doing anything inappropriate I'm not suggesting that I'm suggesting that it works worth being looked at
0: uh, I, so he didn't say he must did anything wrong right. I'm not sure why he even
1: it's sort of like a firestorm. Yeah. Why would you
0: even go down this route if you're not going to allege that he's doing anything? And if if foreign tech malfeasance is such an issue, why did they put on hold the, Biden administ- the, rather the Trump administration's plan to do something about TikTok, which is by far a greater example, and, and one that even could potentially involve Musk, given that a concern is that because of where uh, tesla the the factory is in yeah. china that makes him kind of beholden to china but tiktok the most important social media platform for kids is explicitly run <laughs> by the chinese yeah, government so that, i don't
1: those those things aren't mutually exclusive so in biden's def- defense he was responding to a question he didn't just randomly decide he, you know he was asked yeah. whether or not this was something that is of concern, and he showed, I think, a great deal of restraint in saying, "Well, we don't know. It's probably worth looking into, just like anything else." And people like Matt Stoller have done a good job of actually being very concrete about the ways in which Elon has demonstrated a willingness to bend the knee, as it were, to Chinese uh, the, the Chinese government because of how much of his business depends on manufacture manufacturing in that country. That's just a fact of life, and so I'm not sure, you know. You know, this is kind of one of those reporter-instigated dramas.
0: Yeah. That's fair um, enough. Yeah. Well Musk signaled in a QA with advisors yesterday that Twitter Blue will eventually treat tweets involving mentions or replies from nonpaying, unverified users a bit like email spam. According to PC magazine, he said, quote, over time, maybe not that long of time, when you look at mentions, replies, whatnot, the default will be to look at verified accounts. You can still look at unverified, just as in your Gmail or whatever, you can still look at the probable spam folder. Although that's kind of like the way it is now. You have a tab for verified. Mentions unverified. I mostly just look at verified every now and then. What I, an admission, I, Robbie. Not yeah. one
1: for the proletariat. Sorry, if you're huh? yelling
0: at me and, and <laughs> you don't have a check, I <laughs> might miss it.
1: Well, it's not. I'm not sure that unverified people. I don't know that there's that option when you're not verified. For one, to sort it by. Yeah, I, I, I don't, actually, I don't, I don't, don't know how the other side lives. I'm sorry. I don't. I. I, <laughs> I don't remember. Yeah. I will say that I don't like that at all. I think yeah. some of the best posts. That come down the transom are from unverified accounts, and there's going to be an incredible barrier to growing your account if unverified people never get the benefit of being retweeted and boosted by bigger accounts. But now we're now we're
0: creating a instead of a two tier system of verified and unverified people, it seems like I, I and I don't I don't fully understand what's going on. It seems like we're we're getting to a, a three tier system because yes. now some people are being are verified uh, natively because they're they're important enough, I guess. And then people will pay for verification. Uh, this is Matt Iglesias, the, the, uh, uh, the writer Matt Iglesias joked that this is akin to like the medieval, um, the, 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 the nobility who have it because of their ancestry, mm-hmm. the, the uh, knights of the sword, mm-hmm. versus the knights of the cloth who I paid pay for, it, for it. it and the king had to buy it from the king or something. Yeah, this,
1: this is not <laughs> equality producing here. He's creating multiple tiers of um, kind of privilege. Well, aren't the there two ass. different things? There's, now, there's a check. There
0: was a different thing, too. There's two yeah, things. You, you can
1: see it. it. You are labeled differently if you Official. have the pay-for check versus the native, like, organically right. derived check. And that combined with basically erasing non-verified people from the timeline, I don't understand how anybody could see this as a democracy increasing Process. It's a hit. it's imposing a hierarchy yeah. on a site that previously was fairly democratic outside of the moderation uh, aspect. We of don't it. know
0: that it was fairly democratic.
1: Look, I, I say this before. I've say, I'll say it again. I was a 500 follower account within the recent, yeah. like very recently in like two, 2017, and I really appreciated the ability to engage with journalists, high, like big follower accounts, famous people that I. Didn't know me. I didn't even use my real name at the time, but was able to have substantive engagements and grow an organic following because people were able to judge you on the base on the merits of what you were saying and whether or not they agree with mm-hmm. your opinions. And he's trying to move the site away from that into a site where it's just celebrities adding each other or like. Nobody stars wants having that. I mean, that is not
0: something anyone wants. So yeah, I, I can't dr- imagine that's going to succeed. And th- this verification process is going a little bit awry because now we have plenty of examples of people being wrongly verified as the thing, but they're a a parody or something. Maybe we can put some of those on screen. There was a George Bush one. There was a Tony Blair one. Um, Can we put a a few of those up? Um, Yeah,
1: so the whole point of the the check so this is um, a not Elon Musk. That's the Musk. Elon Musk one. <laughs> but, so when parodying Elon Musk, they had parody written in their banner uh, and in their description. So you can see it clearly see it says parody account. And at some point, people were doing this. And Elon Musk said, if you do this and you don't clearly label that you're a parody, you're going to yeah. be banned without any warning. But that's
0: always what the policy was.
1: This person put parody in their, uh, their account and was still banned.
0: Oh, this is the, this is a Nintendo one.
1: This is someone m- mimicking the N- N- Nintendo account, yeah. and so you it see it says
0: Nintendo of U.S., but it says so Nintendoofus. Okay,
1: yeah, yeah. and you ha- so you have to look very closely at the handle, the part following the at side, to figure out what's going on.
0: Yeah, here are the parody ones <laughs> I was looking for. So obviously not the real George Bush. Obviously, but not
1: so obviously, especially when a lot of the handles are pretty close to what you might mm-hmm. expect from some, you know most people's handle. A lot of people's handles aren't their names. My handle is at Joy. You know, is someone going, I actually have squatted on at Brianna Joy Gray as well, but like someone could go and find something that's similar to my name or your name, get a verification check. And apart from kind of assessing maybe the volume of uh, followers that people have, there's no way now to actually yeah. determine the I mean, this has happened real. to me
0: before. I've, I've had in person, they're not parody if they were funny or whatever. And, right. and obviously, if it's parody, I right. wouldn't care. Um, I can have a sense of humor about myself. Sure. But ones that are pretending to be me and then are messaging your followers or yes. your mutual, then you report them and the, the site should take them down. It should right. absolutely take them down. Right. Everyone agrees with Right. It, well, that's not even contentious. Yeah.
1: Well, right, writer of newsletter Misinfo.com at Bender tweeted, Twitter built the this MF paid for Twitter meme right into its paid Twitter Blue subscription. If you click a blue check mark on a user's profile, it will show you. This is what you were saying before, Robbie. If they were given one as an actual notable user, or it will show you if they paid for it. We also double checked this is, in fact, true. So a- a- again, this is, right. this is. The whole, the, the problem behind blue checks, the reason people don't like blue checks is wielding something that was supposed to be about verification as a status symbol. That's not something that inherently built into it, but it's a culture that has evolved around blue checks. But there are many, many blue checks who have small follower accounts, but who are journalists, they have bylines. That's how you used to get verified. You submitted a byline. You showed that you were a real person. Mm-hmm. You showed that you who are who you said you are. And Elon Musk is very intentionally shifting away from that model into one that completely embraces the solution celebrity aspect that has come up around the site, which is the most toxic and unpleasant thing about the whole thing.
0: Aren't you having a fun time, though? Something has changed. It's gotten better.
1: Yeah, it does feel like that he's gotten rid of whatever kind of shadow bands, ideological blocks, whatever was keeping some of us at like a, a base on growing I'm more convinced those things year. were in place
0: than I was before because it is noticeably different. My experience on the platform is noticeably different. I agree. In the last two and a half weeks or however long it's been,
1: I agree. So there's going to be some pros and cons with Elon Musk. Mm-hmm. But I'm not one of those people who kind of categorically thinks that everything that he says or does is a bad idea. I think his plan about Ukraine de- democracy is a plan great idea. A better place <laughs> Mean. But I think we also have to be clear-eyed about the fact that a lot of the problems with the app were not these kind of random ideological issues. They were coming from advertisers, uh, and they're coming from, you know, people who like Elon's doing in this moment, who didn't necessarily understand the ethos of the app before they plunged in and are trying to to switch things up to make money. He has to make money, by the way. Part of why he's pushing this Twitter Blue and the eight dollars subscription is because. Uh, advertisers are pulling out of Twitter because of the instability there, Um, he has had to his, the stock price of Tesla keeps falling as he keeps trying to pull money out of that business to fund his new business. He just sold $4 billion more billion of Tesla. The stock price is down now 22% since the day he took over Twitter, mm-hmm. meaning Tesla's market value has dropped by $160 billion. It would
0: be a real shame if we're um, uh, undermining the goal of like a colony on mars in order to fix twitter
1: well, that's, <laughs> let's, that's let's, priori- objective. let's
0: prioritize some things elon musk <laughs> sure. i would rather be on mars sure well, we'll have more rising for you right after this president biden thanked young voters for showing up for democrats in historic numbers this tuesday let's watch
2: and i especially want to thank the young people of this nation who I'm told I haven't seen the numbers uh, voted historic numbers again, and uh, just as they did two years ago, and <clears throat> they voted to continue addressing the climate crisis, gun violence, their personal rights and freedoms, and the student debt relief.
0: The president's loan forgiveness plan may have been what stopped a red wave, garnering support from younger Gen Z voters and incentivizing them to show up to the polls. That's according to a new article in Business Insider. According to Circle analysis of 2022 Edison National Exit Poll data, roughly 27 percent of the youth ages 18 to 29 cast a ballot in the 2022 midterms, and 63% of these voters supported Democrats, with 35% for Republicans, 89% of black youth, and 68% of Latino youths under 30 voting for a Democratic House candidate.
1: A Wall Street Journal poll last week found that while 48% of the public favored Biden's debt relief plan, 59% of voters aged 18 to 34 backed the plan. And a morning consult poll from last year found that millennial voters are the most likely group to support nationwide student debt forgiveness, with Gen Zers second most likely, followed by Gen Xers and then Baby boomers.
0: I mean, which makes sense because a uh, lot, I mean, a lot of Gen Zers are still in college. <laughs> uh, millennials. Are... Well, right, but
1: also Gen Xers and baby boomers didn't have to pay seventy thousand dollars a year to go right. to college. I mean, there right. was an exponential uh, rise in the cost of college yeah. just between the millennials and Gen X generation over the course of like fifteen to twenty years. So a lot of boomers are just, I'm sorry, including Joe Biden are painfully out of touch about the different conditions that younger voters are under. But I I bring Biden into this only because during the primary, he was asked whether or not he had sympathy for younger voters. And he said explicitly on the campaign trail, no, I don't have any sympathy for them at all. So that's where a lot of people were, and activists have pulled him kicking and screaming to take the position that he's taking now on student debt relief, which was way to the right of most other candidates than Democratic primary, by the way. Um, and yet, even doing a kind of a milk toast service to student debtors, it's paid off big. So, you know, Dem- as we said, Democratic voters, uh, 30 to 34, up to 18 to 29, up 28. And if it had not been for the unprecedented turnout among youth voters that was matched only by a 2018 um, turnout, we would have been in a very different situation today, potentially. Mm.
0: Yeah, look, I as I've made clear on the show, I absolutely disagree with this policy. Um, I wish they hadn't done it. But for, for the political optics of it, I, right, you might very well be right. I would see no reason to disagree. I can absolutely accept that it was a politically smart move that did, um, and that he was rewarded with um, high turnout among uh, young people, among people who hold debt for Democrats. That seems perfectly plausible and probably speaks to uh, a, a need for Republicans to if they're going to oppose this policy, and again, I think they should, because I also oppose it, um, they're going to need to come up with some kind of language about, well, if you're going to oppose this, what are you going to do to fix the cost of college problem? Look, I agree. You need to fix the cost of
1: college problem. But look what happened to the Democrats who took that line, as opposed to the Democrats that supported Joe Biden's policy. Tim Ryan lost in Ohio. He came out strong against uh, Joe Biden's student debt relief policy, saying that it was unfair mm-hmm. to the people of Ohio to cancel debt for this population. Uh, and Cortez Masto, who was struggling uh, to make up uh you know, coming up from behind, yeah. said that she disagreed with the White House's blanket forgiveness uh, policy because it does not address the underlying issues with college affordability. She said, quote, I don't agree with today's executive action because it doesn't address the root problems that make college affordable. We should be focused On my legislation to expand Pell Grants for lower income students, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Okay. I completely agree that there needs to be a more comprehensive um, approach here, but instead of saying yes, and, and actually fighting for a more comprehensive approach and saying if Democrats stay in power, this is what we're going to get, they naysayed, said no, painted themselves as enemies of the kinds of programs that really help a lot of struggling Americans. A huge number of people in her district, 11%, I believe, of her district have student loans. And I bet as she is... Trailing by such a small margin, she wishes some of those people had come out with her because of her
0: enthusiasm. But I guess the devil's program. advocate argument is there. I mean, you saw the, the polling for student debt forgiveness. Yes, maybe she would gain voters among young voters if she'd supported it, but theoretically could have lost people. On the other side of that question, I mean, we don't know the but.
1: theoretical voter who would, was otherwise going to vote for the Democrats than a candidate, but for their their uh, support of student debt cancellation. I mean, that
0: was the calculation they made, I guess.
1: And it, I think that the the proof is in the pudding. And you know, her not, you know, expected not to come out on top probably in that race, um, and Tim Ryan's colossal failure tracking with low youth turnout shows that there are consequences. So Democrats and Republicans alike spend a lot of time pandering to homeowners, pandering to frankly, people who are much more economically affluent, tax cuts that overwhelmingly benefit the rich. At the same time, they ignore working class population, students, and others that have been left behind. And I think this is a real moment for working people to realize that their votes matter and that if they are able to leverage their vote and show that they're willing to turn out when they're actually given policies that benefit them, then they will get stuff in return. The only question now is whether or not Joe Biden will actually follow through on his promise to, in fact, Uh, cancel the $10,000 to $20,000 for the poorest Americans that he's promised to cancel. What do you
0: mean fall through? That's what he's doing. Well, it's been held up in the
1: courts. Right, Um, but
0: he can't do anything about that. Well,
1: he could have immediately canceled student debt instead of making it a means-tested program, in which case there wouldn't have been these opportunities for people to obstruct. And that's what a lot of the student debt advocates have been saying, that he's basically set it up to give himself an out if he wants to. Now, it looks like there's a likelihood that he's going to be successful and overcome these lawsuits. There was a recent story that the plaintiff in the main suit, uh, uh, Myra Brown, actually got a $50,000 government bailout for PPP loans and is now suing because of other people getting $10,000 of student loan debt canceled. I think this is a real stinker for conservatives on the Democratic side and the Republican side alike who are opposing this policy, because it's very clear that the government has absolutely no problem giving handouts to the rich and not to poor, struggling students.
0: But a lot of people, a lot of these conservatives would have opposed those handouts as well.
1: Yeah, but they took them, didn't they?
0: Yeah, I guess so. (laughs) Republicans need to shift the discussion of, of what's wrong with educate from a curriculum basis to a to a funding basis to a to the to the system that is creating yeah. these debtors. Um, I think so. Talk about the yeah. cost being adequate. You talked about the the rise of uh, of the cost in the last. 20, 30 years. Um, you can track it to the administrative bloat at so many of these institutions. The, the, the level of funding of and paying for administrators versus teachers, not teachers, but the administrators to make the college experience more uh, fancier, that's what they're paying for at and, and no increase to the educational quality whatsoever.
1: Well, I, I think I would track it closer to the fact of guaranteed federal funds. Uh, how do you how are you able to fund administrators, how are you able to fund bloat? It's because you have guaranteed federal backing. One follows the other. I don't think that schools are just randomly engaging in that kind of an arms race uh, for better facilities, et cetera, for no reason. I think a lot of the bloat also comes from athletic programs and other non-education. Well, it's not state. for no reason.
0: It's to attract more students so they get more of those federal right. subsidies. Right,
1: exactly. And I think that if we're going to sit around talking about, I mean, I mean professors are underpaid, adjunct professors are carrying an enormous uh, amount of the educational burden without being compensated. Meanwhile, millions of dollars are going to sports facilities, and millions of the dollars that are going to fund those uh, sports facilities are going to Brett Farms' pet projects, apparently. So there's a lot of problems here. But I definitely agree that the, the, the fundamental flaw here is that there are federally guaranteed loans that are. Uh, causing um the price of college to grow uh, exponentially bernie sanders has a plan for that there's a bill there to to vote for if anybody actually cares to address it and make Co- public colleges and universities tuition free the way we were moving toward in the 1960s and 1970s, and the way that so many other successful well, something has to done. change
0: without any tweaks to the system. Uh, the um, there will be the same amount of cumulative college debt a few years from now as there was now. I guess I guess Democrats can forgive a piece of it. That like, maybe they can set themselves up so every election you could forgive a little bit of college I mean, debt they, right before the election win just like and tax then uh, for do the nothing. rich
1: Come on a periodic basis mm-hmm. and. Uh, and, and the, like, lowering the wealth tax and things like that. And I
0: think confiscating less of people's money is not morally equivalent to giving people more I of other people's rich money. People but telling people they don't have uh, to pay
1: the, the, their fair share in the, and they have the lower tax practice than their secretaries How about we have everyone have, money money have a lower I don't
0: secretaries to pay taxes, either? They'll shrink everybody's taxes down to nothing. Nothing. All right, well, we'll a, have volu- a, a voluntary a government that is voluntary basis of payment.
1: That sounds like a really good, great plan for rich people. I'm sure we'll continue this discussion and we'll have more rising for you after this. President Volodymyr Zelensky recently changed his stance on peace talks with Russia. According to Politico, the Ukrainian president agreed that peace talks can begin with Russian President Vladimir Putin still in power. This, following a visit with National Security Adviser Jake Sullivan, several candidates in the 2022 midterms campaigned on Ukraine. Marjorie Taylor Greene, who won her reelection bid, promised, "Quote, under Republicans, not another penny will go to Ukraine."
0: According to Alexei Goncharenko, a member of the European Solidarity Party in Ukraine, Ukrainians are welcoming the early results of the midterm elections, happy with the defeat of some of the more right-leaning, isolationist candidates by candidates who have supported U.S. assistance to Ukraine. Joining us now to discuss how the midterm results could impact U.S. policy on the Ukraine-Russia conflict is Executive Vice President at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, Dr. Trita Parsi. Welcome.
4: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Yep. Thanks for joining us. So we were, some people were expecting a bigger um, victory in the House among Republicans, many of whom had promised to rethink our kind of endless commitment to sending money to Ukraine. Um, that you know, victory was not that vast, although it still does look like Republicans will take the House. Um, I, I, what do you make of the, of the I guess, enthusiasm for, for more pro-Democratic Party outcome here uh, among Ukrainians, and then are we, sh- should we be excited about the prospect of actually pushing for, maybe, negotiations between Zelensky and Putin?
4: Well, first of all, I don't think anyone went to the polls voting on foreign policy this time around at, about other issues. So the outcome of the elections is not, Uh, a barometer of where the American public is on the war in Ukraine, what the U.S. should or shouldn't do. Uh, Polls have shown quite clearly that the public wants to see more diplomacy. There is definitely support for Ukraine, but it's not endless and it's not without questions. What I think we're seeing right now is that the White House actually has been pursuing the very same things that the progressives in that uh, by now infamous or perhaps visionary um, uh, CPC letter uh, called for, which is to actually see more diplomacy, get towards some form of realistic framework to put an end to this war, and, and and also having direct Russia-U.S. contacts. And it turns out that the White House is actually pursuing exactly what the CPC was asking for, and that I think makes some of those who were so critical of the letter look rather strange.
1: Yeah, Dr. Parsi, what is going on there? We've covered this extensively. The blow up over the letter was bizarre. Do you think this kind of um, new news that negotiations are in progress is because of some of the backlash to the letter? Do you think the backlash to the letter was because these, these talks were already planned, but for some reason they didn't want that to be, an, be open knowledge? What, what do you see the relationship being there?
4: Well, I, I think the fact that the letter came out uh, is a key reason as to the why, why why the White House came clean, about mm-hmm. the fact that it's actually engaging in diplomacy. It became clear to the White House, I believe, that their pursuit of diplomacy was a good thing and that the public would actually welcome it. And in fact, if they weren't coming out with it, they may actually be paying a cost because people were starting to get frustrated at what appeared to be a lack of diplomacy. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, the reaction... Uh, of the letter is because there's some folks out there who are some sort of self-appointed thought police who believe that they're supposed to go out there and uh, squash any debate that may go in a direction that they think is opposite to what the White House wants. The problem is they have no clue what the White House wants because clearly the White House wanted diplomacy, was engaged in diplomacy, and probably, frankly, welcomed the idea of a letter and the opening of a political space that the letter did provide, despite of mm-hmm. the way that it played out, because that's what they needed. I've, done, I've been involved in some things. I've studied diplomacy quite a lot. There are many instances in which you actually do need to have secret negotiations. Mm-hmm. This one does not qualify. Mm-hmm. So my, my thought is that the only reason why the White House was not open about the diplomacy that was taking place was precisely out of the fear of the backlash, not from the American public, but from these pundits and the broader blob, who has taken this extreme anti-diplomacy position that is now clearly the opposite position of what the White House is pursuing. Yeah,
0: they feared backlash, perhaps, from actor Sean Penn, who uh, met with President Zelensky and offered him a unique gift. Let's watch that.
2: This is for you. Oh, Sean. Yes.
3: <laughs> no,
0: please. That, that was. is yours. No. I. I feel terrible outside.
2: I just—it's just a symbolic, silly thing. Yes,
0: but, but I, if but I
2: know—but if I know this is here with you, then I'll then I'll feel better and stronger to, for the fight.
3: It's so great, great to honor, but yeah. until we will.
2: When you when you win, bring it back to Malibu. Great. Yes. Great. Okay. Because I'll feel okay. much better knowing there's a piece of me here.
4: We have to win. Be... A moment which is very important. It's not from me. It's from Ukraine. It's more Yeah,
5: please.
0: With that level of like over-the-top um, uh, support for continuing the war effort until, I suppose, the utter the preposterous thing that won't happen, the utter defeat of Russia and the overthrow of Vladimir Putin, um, you can see why there's cultural pressure, I think, exactly like what you were saying, for uh, continuing with the, you know, no negotiation,
4: the hardline kind of position. Yeah. And if we take a look now back about two or three months, we now see that there's been strategic leaks from the White House. Trying to open up this space, you know the revelation that Biden was very annoyed with Zelensky mm-hmm. because Zelensky was asking for more, even when the Biden administration was providing a tremendous amount of support, and that uh, Biden apparently lost his temper with Zelensky on that call. There's a reason why these things are coming out right now. Is precisely because the Biden administration wants to go in a more diplomatic uh, direction, and they want and they need to put some pressure on all sides in order to get them to drop unrealistic preconditions for diplomacy. Both sides are going to come to some form of a conversation at some point with maximalist positions. That's inevitable. What you need to avoid is the preconditions that make diplomacy impossible. And we have now seen, and the White House itself has revealed, that they have put some pressure on the Ukrainians to drop their unrealistic uh, demands, their preconditions that would ensure that there's no diplomacy. I assume similar things have been done with the Russians as well, because the signal's coming out of Russia and also.
1: bit different this is what is so very confusing to me though if it is true that biden isn't the one that the biden administration rather isn't the one that's putting all the downward pressure on the letter and there are so many people colleagues of yours and kind of the left um, a you know progressive foreign policy space, uh, anti-war f- foreign policy space, like Matt Dust, Bernie Sanders' former policy advisor, um, like Joe Cerencioni, uh who were so antagonistic to the letter. Matt Dust flip-flopped, said he was for the letter until the backlash started, and then was against it. What was motivating Matt, if not an effort to protect the Biden administration?
4: Well. First, I want to avoid getting into uh, any personal things. I've seen that some of them have. I don't think it's constructive. So let me just say what my take is on why some people who were not in the know uh, were acting this way. I think they personally thought that this is what they need to do to protect the president. And, you know, that's an instinct that folks have at various times. But to act on it with the arrogance of actually not knowing what's going on and assuming that you do, and taking a very hostile position that some did, and I don't want to name any names, um, uh towards diplomacy and and and, and the very um yeah, very unconstructive approach to it. This is ultimately really, really uh, uh negative for the country as a whole, because ultimately the United States does need diplomacy. We need direct talks with the Russians because we have a clear interest in avoiding nuclear war. And when even President Obama has come out and said that, you know, the level of the uh, negotiations and communications with the Russians is lower than it ever has been since the Cold War, that is a clear warning sign that, look, there's some changes here that need to be done. And it's very unfortunate that some voices, not all, but some voices have acted of trying to just cement the current situation, thinking that that is how they protect the president, whereas in reality, they were completely out of sync with the president
0: what should we hope for or expect when uh, negotiations do take place um you know what 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 does ukraine need to get from russia to be you know kind of okay with its situation obviously we talk a lot about you know vladimir putin in in, know might need some kind of safe face uh, face saving uh the, the part of the he might need to acquire or have independent part of um the eastern part of ukraine uh, but what you know what are the ukrainians going to going to be comfortable with so they don't feel like they're about to be you know invaded again when the dust settles and the russian military gets rebuilt if russia really doesn't want ukraine to join nato okay but is there going to have to be some kind of security or protective agreement from the us or other european nations
4: so some of these things will come out of the dynamics of diplomacy it's impossible to completely predict that ahead of time and i think this is part of the misunderstanding that appears to exist in some quarters about diplomacy. Diplomacy is not going there with a finished uh, uh, proposal and just put it on the table and say, leave it or take it, Uh, take it or leave it. Um, There are dynamics in that that will come out that may bring us to a point that is not the one that either side necessarily predicted would happen or had any particular preference for or against. The issue is that some of these things we don't actually know until real conversations begin. And that's why it's so dangerous uh, if talks are not taking place because so much about diplomacy is actually to collect intelligence on where the other uh, side is on various issues. Are they cracking on some things? How do they see their situation? How can you influence how they see their situation? Not all of it is just about where the line or the border is going to be drawn. So much more goes into diplomacy. And not having enough of it is to the detriment of all of us, particularly the United States, because we have a clear interest in making sure that this conflict comes to an end, in the right way, of course, but it nevertheless has to come to an end.
1: Thank you so much for that, Dr. Parsi.
4: Thank you so much for having me.
1: We'll have more Rising for you after this. Though some races still haven't been called, it appears Republicans will regain control of the House following voting in Tuesday's midterm elections. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, in his bid for majority leader, told CNN that he vows to secure the border cut back on government spending, and launch rigorous investigations into the Biden administration.
0: McCarthy, however, is not unchallenged. Yesterday, House Minority Whip Steve Scalise announced his bid to become the next leader of the House should Republicans take it back, saying, quote, "...the American people deserve a House of Representatives that can move the agenda that was promised to them on the campaign trail." Joining us now to weigh in on this is Senior Fellow at the Brookings Institution and Professor of Sociology at the University of Maryland, College Park, Dr. Rashawn Ray, and also Senior Policy Analyst at the Independent Women's Forum, Kelsey Bolar. Welcome to you both. Hi. Hi. So, Kelsey, I'll start with you. Um, is there going to be a, a real challenge here to McCarthy's leadership? I, I mean, I think we were, or so many people were expecting a larger House, um, a larger majority for Republicans in the House, maybe giving him some more flexibility. But given that he has to get, you know, a a majority of the entire House vote, not just the Republican vote, but the entire House vote, I I know he was meeting with Marjorie Taylor Green, for instance, for like an hour yesterday. Um, What's uh, what's going on here? Does he not have very much room to to wiggle? (laughs) Yeah,
6: I do think it's possible he's going to face a challenge. Um, becoming Speaker of the House because he does need that majority. And uh, it appears that Republicans, while um, gaining the majority, it's by a much slimmer margin. And this does have implications uh, because the Republican Party is not a party of censorship where everybody falls in line um, behind, you know, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, for example, which we often <laughs> have seen on the left, where years and years um there are differences of opinions and so um certainly there could be uh, some some politics playing out as we uh you know figure out exactly uh what the margin kevin mccarthy has to work
1: with well what is the alternative who else is in the running
6: well, I think we see sort of the what what are branded as these MAGA Republicans viewing Kevin McCarthy as more of an establishment figure. Um, I, I believe Matt Gates has been vocal uh, in not wanting to support McCarthy, but ultimately, uh, I, I that that is not the majority of the conference. I do think Kevin McCarthy will have uh, you know the, co- the the Republican coalition behind him, but he just doesn't have much room for error for, um, you know, many of these uh, different members deciding not to support him. Ultimately, Republicans do have to coalesce around someone. Uh, So I I think it's likely that it will be Kevin McCarthy. Uh, But you know, this, this isn't going to be as clear cut as perhaps he hoped it was would be heading
1: into the midterms. Hmm. Rashawn, does this present any opportunities for Democrats uh, or for uh, there to be any kind of coalition perhaps around issues like uh, Ukraine war funding, for which there is this burgeoning kind of anti-war movement on the right, and some push for progressives to be more vocal about putting some conditions on Ukraine, Ukraine uh, aid?
7: Well, look, I, I think a lot of Americans hope so. I think what Americans hope for in these next two years is to see more collaboration, between Republicans and Democrats. I mean, of course, McCarthy is out front, but Scalise has also said that that he's probably going to throw his name in the hat. So I think Americans hope that there will be some some ways to come together to think about the economy, to also think about tech infrastructure, to think about what's happening uh, with hate and social media. So I think that there are a lot of ways for them to work together. Biden has said that he hopes that he'll be able to work with Republicans. He is thrown out some non negotiables dealing with abortion and climate change, but he seems to be open to other things. So I think what Americans hope is that we won't see just two years of stalemates because I think the American public cannot necessarily deal with that moving forward.
0: Mm. Yeah, and uh, Kelsey, uh, you know, what, where do Republicans go from here with such a disappointing night, even though they will take um, the, expect to take the House The Senate is very much up for grabs still, but not absolutely not going to be the decisive victory Republicans had expected. Um, Does this lend itself to a rethinking of any Republican priorities, policies, or is it more a personality problem?
6: Well, look, my election analysis is you know, It wasn't the red wave that a lot of us hoped for, but it wasn't exactly disappointing. I mean, there's still a chance that Republicans are going to take control of the Senate. We have to wait to see what's happening there. But taking uh, majority control of the House is a big deal. We've had two years of the Biden administration being completely unaccountable for its decisions. The the disastrous, deadly withdrawal in Afghanistan is just one example where we still don't have so many answers into what enabled that to happen and what can prevent such a disaster, such an embarrassment for our country from ever happening again. And by taking control of the House, Republicans have the opportunity to pursue these investigations and to at least bring financial responsibility to this country to try to um, soften the burden that inflation has played on voters, of course, from across the political spectrum. So I do expect a lot to change in Washington, whether or not Republicans take the house. And yes, we are going to see a lot of personality clashes and battles on the right, uh, You know, figuring out where we go from here. Um, of course, Trump is a big conversation on that front and there is a place and time for that. But what is encouraging from my perspective is that accountability is going to be returned to Washington, thanks to Republican control
1: of the House. Well, speaking of uh, President Trump, you know, he was supportive of uh, withdrawing from Afghanistan and that was something that was very popular among uh, Americans. So I wonder if that also had something to do with the red wave not being exactly the wave that people thought it was. Former President Trump said he would support Kevin McCarthy in his bid for Speaker of the House. He won't be able to cast a vote for the congressman, but Donald Trump does hold sway over a significant portion of House Republicans. Uh, Speaking, however, about the GOP Senate leader, Mitch McConnell, Trump said, quote, if I run and if I win, I will say, don't send me any legislation if he's the leader and he'll be out in two minutes.
0: President Trump already has an idea of who he'd replace McConnell with. Earlier this week, he touted Florida Senator Rick Scott as a likely replacement. Biden said on Wednesday that he looks forward to working with Republicans in Congress following the midterm elections, but emphasized he would not compromise on abortion, Social Security, or climate change.
1: Biden also added he would keep his campaign promise of not increasing federal taxes on anyone making less than $400,000 a year. Rayshawn, what do you make of this?
7: Look, I I think that it makes a lot of sense. Look, when we start talking about this midterm election and the red wave that was supposedly supposed to happen, it simply did not happen. And we have to be very clear about how far back we're talking about. Sometimes my gray eyebrows show how old I am, but in my lifetime, we we have not seen a closer midterm election over the past four decades. Republicans know that. Trump also knows that His candidates, his backed candidates, did not win and and perform in the way that he thought they were. So he actually has to think about McCarthy. He has to think about being um, in bed in many ways with the Republican establishment because he knows that his time might be up, particularly when we look at what happened in Florida with DeSantis, what is happening, say, in Pennsylvania, and even what happened in places in Texas outside of the governor election. So look, there are a lot of things happening with Republicans right now. One of the things that the american public does not want to see is simply a stalemate between democrats and republicans and we know that biden during his time in the senate had a lot of opportunities and a lot of times to collaborate across the aisle he did that and i think people are hoping that is going to happen and look we also have to be clear that that democrats saying that abortion was their big issue it did work in a lot of ways in certain places and i think that's the reason why a lot of these elections are much closer than people Mm -hmm. thought
0: Well, Kelsey, Rashawn, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. We'll have more Rising right after this.
1: Much to the surprise of Republicans, and perhaps to themselves, Democrats managed to avoid a red wave on Tuesday. In a piece published last night in her Substack, political activist and former presidential hopeful Marianne Williamson highlighted that it wasn't either party's night, but rather the people's, saying, quote, It was neither the Democrats nor the Republicans who spoke loudest on Tuesday. It was the voice of the American people that came through loud and clear with a message that said, OK, enough with the crazy. Let's get back to who we are.
0: A variety of ballot initiatives across the country revealed where voters uh, stand on several issues uh, directly. Voters in Missouri voted to legalize marijuana. Nebraska voters voted for a $15 minimum wage. And Illinois voted to green light collective bargaining. And in five states, including in Deep Red, Kentucky and Montana, voters did, in fact, want to protect access to abortion. Here to talk more about how
1: voters helped fend off a, quote, Bloody Tuesday from happening this week is none other than Ms. Williamson herself. Welcome back to the show, Marianne.
3: Oh, thank you so much for having me.
1: All right, so many people are characterized, this. it's a weird posture to be in, right, where not losing as badly as you thought is considered to be a win. And I do think that you're right that some of the conversation about which party is coming out on top is obscuring a lot of the mixed results we're seeing coming out of red states, where you see red states voting for $15 minimum wages, protecting abortion rights, collective bargaining, and on and on and on. So to what do you attribute this turn?
3: Well, I don't see it as a win, but I see it as a reprieve. Mm. I see it as a moment that we can all sort of stand back and not have to be in constant traumatized survival mode just trying to keep these anti-democratic authoritarian forces from completely obliterating us. So it gives us a chance in a way to regroup. Now, I'm sure that the authoritarian, authoritarian forces that are represented by the more than two, 210 uh, election deniers that did win I'm sure that those forces will regroup right now, and I think this is time for us to regroup. And in doing so, we want to recognize what you just said. The country is moving in a progressive direction. People don't always associate the progressive policies that they support with the Democratic Party. But when it comes to things like universal health care, Fox News saying that 65% of their viewers feel that it is the government's responsibility to Mm -hmm. provide health care for everyone. People are seeing through, at last, the propagandistic projection onto progressive policies that they represent socialism or the nanny state. So the Democratic Party now, I believe, should align itself with its own progressive base, should align itself with unabashedly with the traditional pillars in an FDR sense of what the Democratic Party once was, the unequivocal and unabashed support for the working people of the United States. If the Democratic Party will align itself with its own progressive base, then, and I think perhaps only then, will we be able to make a uh, make a real dent in the authoritarian forces force field that's uh, coming at us and coming at us strongly.
0: Marianne, do you think the messaging from Democratic candidates, the really constant uh, warning about the threat to democracy was effective? I mean, it, frankly, it was something I think we criticized a little bit as being over the top at times. But it seems to have really motivated people to not vote for Republicans or maybe particularly some of these zanier Republican characters or, or, in fact, candidates who have, uh, as you point out, um, you know, raised questions about the 2020 election.
3: Well, you know, it's interesting that you say that because I was someone thinking, why is he continuing to talk about that? He should be talking about economic issues. And then I read something right before the election that turned out to be true. It was someone who said he's not talking to Republicans. He's talking to his own base. And I thought that is so interesting because I think actually, as it turns out, there was more wisdom in that than I had expected. I think a lot of people did go, whoa, whoa, this this is serious. Maybe I better vote.
1: Are, are you surprised at all, Marianne? Because I remember I watched uh, some of Kerry Lake's uh it wasn't quite a debate, but her debate performance. And she's very poised, and she was, I think, a really good example of Republican messaging from the more Trump-aligned um, wing of the party. She was hitting talking points about uh, concerns about transition surgery for trans youth. She was talking about COVID-era policies and lockdowns. Um, and, and I was worried watching her because of how kind of, uh, able she was and messaging on things that I substantively disagree with but which I feared a lot, much of the party actually was priori- much of the country rather was prioritizing and now we've seen these results don't necessarily reflect that. Do you think that that Republican messaging on those kind of culture issues was ineffective? Do you think that the abortion concerns were just a stronger pitch? Um, or, 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 or what, do you, what do you make of the Republican approach to this election and the results that we've seen?
3: Well, you can't look into the hearts and minds of every voter in America and know exactly where they were coming from. But what you just said is what makes the results so interesting. The American people pretty much struck to a center. But that center has to do with the fact that we are so split. In fact, you mentioned Carrie Lake. You said she worries you. She terrifies me. Hmm. Now, I don't know uh, if that has actually been called yet. Her and the Katie Hobbs race. Has that been called?
0: No, it's still it's still unsure. We don't know.
3: Okay, but the very fact that it's still unsure. So uh, whether she won or not, she, even if she loses, she's close to winning. So they are obviously getting somewhere. On the other hand, the American electorate is not a monolith. Other people, uh, did care more about abortion. And other people do look at the carry Lakes of the world and go, whoa, we're not going there. Um, yeah, she's scary. She has it down. I mean, Obama in one of his talks referred to her as well-lit. Um <sighs> he knows what she's doing in terms of a certain kind of delivery uh, of a message. Hmm. But uh, many of us feel that she is dead wrong about where this country needs to be moving.
0: You know, obviously the night was not a total disappointment for Republicans. They are likely to take the House. The Senate still is potentially in the mix. And then Republicans had a very, very, very good night in Florida, which has gotten redder and redder under Ron DeSantis's leadership. Ron DeSantis, obviously quite likely to be a top Republican candidate, if not the Republican candidate next time round. Um, I, I worry about um, if, if we get better sorted, like, you know, all, the, all Republicans moving to Florida, moving to Texas, uh, Democrats, um, you know, sorting themselves into some other places. I think they've, always, they've already been, you know, more heavily sorted historically. Um, our politics could get even more angry as, uh, if we're fighting for who controls the entire country, but everyone is, uh, you know, people who want it a certain way are all in Florida and Texas, and people who want another way are all in California and New York, then the contest for the the presidency or for national representation in the federal government will just be even more debitter because it's so winner-take-all, and it's so, you know, you'll force on Florida what Team Blue wants, or you'll force on California what Team Red wants.
3: Well, you just made the case for getting rid of the Electoral College. And that's, it should just be whatever the majority of Americans want. It shouldn't have to do what state people, uh, with what state people come from. Um, I do think that in time we will be getting rid of the electoral college, uh, but not immediately. I think, however, it's the only response, the only way to uh, face the challenge of what you just described. Yeah, Florida has gone uh, all red. Texas, uh, Beto didn't win, but Beto made a dent. Uh, I come from Texas, and um, Texas isn't done yet. And you're right. A lot of Republicans are moving there, but a lot of, of people who are on the left, people who are liberals, progressives, etc., are rising up in Texas as well. That story is not over yet.
1: You know, some some people might say that you know Bernie and other progressives have been running on this idea that progressive policies are very popular but um although there were progressive gains the squad has grown um in the context of this last uh, midterm election that bernie himself wasn't able to win etc and they say well what's what's the gap there why is it if the progressive um policies are so popular why do they not seem to be able to coalesce in a, at least a, a candidate on a national level that can carry people <clears throat> across the finish line what do you say to that
3: Well, a a candidate on a national level who did and could have coalesced the progressive sentiments, that is Bernie Sanders and it was the DNC that suppressed his candidacy uh, in 2016. And clearly there was some institutional suppression of his candidacy as well in 2020. We know that. Uh, Bernie is an institutionalist, and he has chosen uh, to work within the construct. Remember, he is a US senator, so he is working within the institution. I think progressives need to spend less time pointing at other people about the choices they're making. And we have to ask ourselves, what is the best way I can serve? Some people are working within the democratic, some people like yourself, uh, feel that the best way is to work outside it and to do certain criticism from there. I think that all of us need, you know, this is an all systems breakdown we have here, and we need to have an all systems response. It's just like cells in the body. Uh, the immune cells the immune cells are, like every other cell, are assigned you to the pancreas, you to the lungs, you to the blood. Each of us, I'm reminded of, of Gandhi's um, expression when he was asked, who is the leader of the Indian independence movement? He said, The small still voice within each of us has to answer the has to respond to our own conscience our own sense of where our skill set can be best put to use bernie does what he he does he's done so much for us he has opened up so much um before we start criticizing the choices he made i think each of us has to ask how can i best serve now
1: Uh, one last question, if I if I can. There was some um, fun uh, scuttlebutt on Twitter when the stat broke about how unmarried woman, women women seem to have carried the day for Democrats. Uh, they broke really? for Democrats by a whopping thirty seven percent. Married women went Republican by fourteen points. <clears throat> Married men went Republican by twenty points. Unmarried men went Republican by seven points. But unmarried women broke for Democrats by thirty seven points. What do you think is going on there?
3: I think we know what's going on there. The idea, (laughs) hello. Um,
1: What what do you you think? It's it's an abortion rights issue. Do you think it's a student debt issue? It's like a younger women issue. I think.
3: Listen, an unmarried woman, and this is this is true in all seriousness. An unmarried woman is having to carry the entire um, the entire weight, uh, whether she has children or not. She is the sole breadwinner. She is the sole. um, Uh, caretaker of the situation in which she is in. So of course she wants to vote for the governmental forces that actually see that government should help people. You know the Republican Party has become unlike, I mean there were times in the past when it wasn't this way, but right now it does not want to use the resources of government to help anyone except the very, very rich and huge corporate forces. Hmm. The Democratic Party, at least to some extent, wants to use, and often to a lot, sometimes less, but certainly more, a hell of a lot more than the Republicans, wants to use the forces of government and the resources of government to help people. So of course an unmarried woman, a woman who's out there carrying the whole weight of her life, likes the idea that her tax dollars are actually going to something that will make her life and the life of her children better. She's Hmm. smart. Hmm.
1: Well, look, it's always so great to get your insights, Marianne. Thanks for joining us today.
3: Always great to see you as well. Thank you, guys.
1: All right. We'll have more rising for you right
7: after this. Tight race against Lauren Boebert. What's the meaning if uh, Lauren Boebert, the second most popular QAnon congressperson in MAGA, what if she goes, what if she loses? And what job will she have? Because I don't even think shooters exist anymore. I don't think shooters exist anymore.
1: Well,
6: I guess it is, I might don't. be a, a it might be a gain for 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 OnlyFans. Uh, I, I don't know <laughs> what she would do in this scenario, but I think that for, for symbolically to take out one of the poster childs of the MAGA movement, someone who has been an absolute disgrace to the office that she holds, uh, would be a great feather in the cap, and and, and would. I think uh, cement the fact that this has been an absolute unmitigated disaster for the MAGA wing of the Republic. tight race against Lauren Boebert.
1: So that felt like a very big non sequitur. Uh, there, I mean,
0: a sexist remark. Uh, something that um, liberals and Democrats would jump all over Republicans for saying. Um, yeah, the, I don't you know why. the
1: point that the commentator there is in fact a Republican. Well, never he
0: was. No, he initiated life. He began life as a Republican. Um, uh, he, I, I, I believe. Was affiliated with Breitbart a million years ago, then became one of those kind of never Trump Republicans on MSNBC. He was associated, worked with the Lincoln Project. Um, now he's, you know, indistinguishable from any other Democrat. Uh, and, and, Engaged in that commentary, Joy Reid laughed at it. I guess she thought that was really funny. Yeah, I so don't see what's funny about it. The, uh, it's just—it's exactly the kind of thing that Democrats pounce on Republicans for saying. Um, it, there, it, it, it there's no—it was a total non sequitur, as yeah, you said. there's nothing. There's
1: no justification for it. And what's very frustrating about it, from my perspective, is there are a million and one substantive reasons not to like mm-hmm. Lauren Boebert. She doesn't understand the Constitution. She thinks there shouldn't be separation between church and state. She has a, was wildly to the right. Of the average American, in terms of the common sense gun policies mm-hmm. that most people want and voted for uh, this year, and on and on down the line, and in fact, and she's even, being punished
0: for it because she did she actually lose? Have we have that confirmed? I'm not sure yet.
1: Yes, yeah, so to the why, well, I, I think it's confirmed so as of yeah, yeah. But you know, even even though Joanne Reed's comment about the pew pew, I think was puerile, and immature, and frankly not becoming of the kind of news commentary you would want to see when you turn on something like MSNBC, it at least is tangentially related to the substance Mm-mm. of what Lauren Boebert has advocated for. This comment about OnlyFans this is completely came out unnecessary. Yeah. And and look, Republicans have been making this argument about Democrats for a while, that their kind of um, righteous defense of uh, historically marginalized people is all a game and a ruse, and it is not in good faith. And that to the extent that Democrats position themselves as defenders of basic rights and Republicans as... Um, you know, big racist meanies, it's inauthentic, and that is just a a position that they take to win elections. (laughs) Now, I do think that obviously there is a lot of authenticity there, as we saw with respect to abortion. Republicans followed through on their promise to end abortion rights. A lot of people got scared and said, oh, we do need a defense of the Democratic Party, so I don't want to erase that there are meaningful differences there. However, moments like this in which there is a lot of hypocrisy um, about how conservative women are treated—we saw this with the treatment of Tara Reid when that scandal broke. There was no interest in investigating it the way that the claims against Brett Kavanaugh were investigated. People immediately got on camera, people like Stacey Abrams, uh, Kamala Harris, who said they believed the charges against Joe Biden at the beginning of the Democratic primary suddenly said there's nothing to see here. I'm not saying mm-hmm. what happened, but there was mm-hmm. no interest in even investigating the accusations at all. You know, it does make it easier for Republicans to make the claim that Democrats don't really mean it, and it hurts the so movement. Joy
0: I mean, remember the scandal over oh, yes. the, the things she had said that I would, that were homophobic? Yes. That she then claimed, which is ludicrous, that she was hacked and she hadn't actually said it. She didn't apologize. She she, she was sorry she got hacked, which yes. didn't happen. Yes. I, so I don't believe that happened. She had a and she's a journalist on a main you have to have credibility as a journalist. Yeah. She doesn't have any because that was absolutely not true what yeah. she said. So for for those of you
1: who missed that tidbit from like the twenty sixteen era, she had a blog way back in the day back when a lot of right. very big writers, Glenn Greenwald blogs were big, where she made a number of homophobic remarks about uh, Congress members. And then she claimed that the Wayback Machine had been hacked and that she never wrote those things in the the first place. She claimed that there was like an FBI investigation into Mm -hmm. her hacking and really played that to the end. Never made any apology uh, and that kind of got memory hold. So yeah, I think there's a lot
0: wrong Here. Which, what are, like people saying mean things, whatever, not the end of the world. Just people apologize. get over upset about it, but it is exactly the kind of thing that democratic commentators get upset about trump 's rhetoric it 's so bad it 's so disjointed, and then they make like oh trump and and uh, and Putin are gay together or something, like, then yes. that easily flies out of their mouths. Yes. Body, like, body shaming statements about yeah. Trump, yes. kissing Right. Are you Putin allowed to posters. make fun of people's appearances or not? I can't yeah. keep track. You yeah. can if it's Orange Trump. man You bad. can if it's Hillary. I don't know Hair what you're plugs, supposed to do. Hairplugs,
1: tan lines. Look, and 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 again, I, this is not to yes. say that that kind of joking and parody isn't fine in certain contexts, et cetera. Like, Elon says comedy is no longer dead, so comedy right. is no longer It's legal on Twitter. It's legal on Twitter. As we talked about in another segment, yeah. that's a very a dubious claim, but it's the hypocrisy and it's the context. I mean, I cannot believe that a commentator on MSNBC compared yeah. a sitting Congress member saying, you know, alluded to the fact that her next job would have to be in porn because no one that's else would bad. hire her. And that was... I guess... It just went without comment.
0: I don't even. I should. I should state as a libertarian, I am. I think sex work should be legal. I don't of, care if you're course. on OnlyFans; it's fine. Doesn't matter to me. Of course. And um, which actually should be the prog- is in many cases the progressive position. So this progressive news show right. shaming someone. For joining OnlyFans, which was not even the case here, but if they were, that's worthy of shame. Now, the
1: the implication is that no one else would like that. This is the bottom of the barrel career path for someone who has no other options. Um, So, it is implicitly shaming the kind of work it is, and the fact that Lauren Bobert would have to quote like tacitly resort to that kind of employment. So, it's it's losing all around. You're right, from a progressive perspective. Yeah, yeah.
0: Anyway, OnlyFans is more like. Uber and so like you you have a job and this is like making money additionally side income so it's not even like have that's you all seen, you would um, be reduced to doesn't is not the economic fundamentals of the platform
1: right it's it's lucrative and I shouldn't say it's not exactly um, well have you seen these like very popular TikToks where people walk around asking people on the street in New York how much money they make or how much money is in their bank account
0: no I have not and
1: it's often a very big number for very young people and then uh. they ask a follow up question. How did you get all that money? And apparently, the answer frequently is only, only fans no. and feet. Pick.com, and I'm making that address up. Don't go there. Um, but these kinds of things. So it, it, it's ludicrous across the across the board. Let us know what you think in, in the comments.
0: We especially shouldn't make fun of it. That's where our show is going to be headquartered after we're censored <laughs> and thrown off every other major <laughs> media platform for on, COVID on, misinformation. On <laughs> <laughs> Probably. All Probably. I right. know there's lots of good political commentary there. Who knows? Maybe it's not. Uh, maybe it's not just sex-based. I don't know.
1: I'll leave that investigation uh, to you, Robbie.
0: I know. No, no. <laughs> we'll leave it. We'll, we'll send an intern. Nope. This is getting. This is getting way out of. Hand.
1: <laughs> we'll have a right we'll shut for down you. this conversation after right this.
0: now <laughs>
4: <laughs> mm.
1: after years of talking about how the slogan defund the police will hurt democratic chances and many Democrats backing away from any implication that they were going to follow up, On the protests that were unprecedented in 2020. Uh, There's been some mixed news out of this uh, election season about how much the uh, slogan or any implication that defund the police is a priority for Democratic Congress members uh, actually hurt the party. Some progressives have pointed out that folks like Kenneth Mejia, who was running in California, ran explicitly pointing out how much of police budgets, or city budgets rather, were going to the police, putting up large bills. Boards uh, across his district pointing out the police had got $3.1 billion of tax money compared to homelessness, which is $802 million, transportation, $342 million, etc. cetera, et cetera. Uh, You had Keith Ellison, a pro police reform uh, DA in Minnesota, winning his race. Uh, and folks are saying that folks like Val Dimmings in Florida, who was a top cop and really ran on, I'm going to, you know, fund the police harder, mm-hmm. also failed to to do well, Uh, Stacey Abrams got some critique saying that she was going to raise uh, police salaries, trying to pivot right on that issue, not convincing very many voters, it seems. Uh, what do you make of this, Robbie? Well,
0: I always want to reward a candidate for putting up a billboard showing just how much money the government is spending. <laughs> and uh, yes, it's, it's horrifying. I mean, we could get some entitlements up there, too, maybe. But uh, no, point taken. Um, I don't know that I agree, though. Certainly, there were some races where it seems to have been, or, or, or and again, I, I don't know that funding the police more is substantively good policy. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that, and I don't know if that is also persuasive to voters. But, mm-hmm. but um, the, the perception that Democrats are not taking crime seriously and that something has to be done clearly helped uh, in the L.A. mayoral race, which is mm-hmm. still going on. All these races still going mm-hmm. on. It's very frustrating. Um, where uh, Caruso, who's this Republican businessman, is um, is uh, winning against uh, Karen Bass, mm-hmm. and then. There were ballot initiatives that are very, the tough on crime, oops, sorry about that, tough on crime ballot initiatives prevailing in Ohio and Alabama, where they restructured um, the cash bail a little bit, adding a dangerousness standard. Um, So in in Ohio, these won, um, the Ohio, they're going to be able to deny bail if uh, the government convinces the judge, the defendant poses a threat to the community, or cannot be trusted um, for all sorts of things, kidnapping, um, murder, sure. rape, etc. cetera. Sure. Um, and then in New York, obviously, w- which w- was crime being really this defining issue um, in, in this race. And in New York City actually not having as many, even though it's been front and center in this debate about inner city crime, New York City's crime rate is not as bad as many other uh, places. So maybe that ended up being a factor. But the challenger, Lee Zeldin, did come very close. To unseating Hochul, the closest any Republican has come in a very, very, very long time by leaning into those issues. So I don't know that, um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's, 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 not, a, it's a mixed bag here. It, I, don't, I don't know. You, you could be right yeah. that Democrats um, trying to sound tough on crime by wanting to fund the police more are just going to make everyone mad because There's they're no making winners. progressives mad exactly. and then and then they're also but, but again republicans at the, don't the republicans don't them. want more funding for government
1: right well and also no one wants an imitation right. republican nobody believes that someone right. like stacey abrams actually you know, wants to ramp up the criminal justice system at the same time that people mm-hmm. who want her to do the opposite are very irritated that she would even signal in that way and potentially vote in that way. She does have a history of, for example, um, defunding a very popular education yeah. pro- program in the state at, out of compromise with Republicans in the state. So you never know what's possible. But
0: Hochul did pivot at the very, uh, again, going back to the New York race, at the end of her her campaign, pivoted so hard rhetorically to... Subway danger, and we're going to fix that. Like she, that was her final pitch to vote. Yeah. She leaned hard into that, and maybe that staved yeah. off defeat.
1: Well, maybe. And it's also will be interesting to see what happens when people live under a mayor like Eric Adams, who ran on those policies and was successful in those policies, but continue to see trends uh, in crime have no relationship to police funding mm-hmm. or this kind of rhetoric at the same time that we are seeing, as always, an increase in mass incarceration and the cost of the state there. So I agree it's a mixed bag. We saw a longtime Bristol County chef- sheriff in. In Massachusetts, who's known as being a tough on crime candidate, lose to the Attleboro mayor. On the other side, we saw uh, Mandela Barnes get hit really hard with um, uh, ads about uh, him being, you know, easy on bail reform, letting criminals out of jail, who let bad things happen uh, in Wisconsin, and that seems to have hurt him there. There were accusations that some of those ads were racist. Well, that would look H. pretty I'm bad as we were investigating,
0: that. though, that uh, the, the person who ran a bunch of people over at, uh, what was it, was it a parade yeah, um, and was someone who had been but released previously for pre- done
1: vehicular man—not <laughs> yeah. manslaughter—but had hit somebody with their car. Yeah, yeah. So that, I don't know ex- that. Those things had anything to do with that. Fine, that but the those things stick. Those yeah. stick in
0: voters' mind, and I don't. It's not. I don't think it's outrageous to be upset about that, or to, to think that it, you know.
1: <laughs> right, but the but the, that being something that is completely well, attenuated fine. from what a candidate is actually advocating for is the issue with I think some of those ads. So I think the point that I am making is not that, of course there are you know people can feel different kinds of way about mm-hmm. crime and certainly everybody a crime is a concern for everybody nobody wants uh, to be the victim of it it's about what solution is best calibrated to meet it But the idea that Democrats have to run fleeing in the opposite direction from something that a lot of their base wants, which is criminal justice reform, which Mm -hmm. is something that got 20 million people in the streets in the summer of 2020, I think has been really disproven. And especially the case of Kenneth Mojia, when you you focus on the question of how much of this city's budget should we be putting into the police, a lot of voters are going to say that's too much money.
0: But there's a lot of... Things in the criminal justice reform bucket, right? I support getting rid of qualified immunity. I support, as does Rand Paul, getting rid of no-knock raids and kind of SWAT team style tactics as for serving, you know, drug arrests. I don't, even, I don't even think we should do drug arrests. There is broad popular consensus for a lot of those things, or, or for pol- police how they treat um, uh, people once they've once they've. Um, once right. they've arrested them, once they've detained them. Horrors that is the Rikers George Floyd, and, that, yeah. well, of that, how they're treated in facilities. I think you can get bipartisan support for that. Then, if we're, you know, if we're expanding it even further into some of the stuff that went on, I think, for instance, in Philadelphia where I, I think there is more of a, or you can point to more of a clearer um, uh, correlation or causation between um, some of the quote-unquote soft-on-crime policies about who's getting pro- not prosecuting enough people for gun for gun arrests and things like that. That's There's a big, more of those that's people a big on the can of
1: worms, Robbie, to, uh, to open at the end of a segment like this. I, I would dispute a lot there. We don't have time to get into that right now, but I'm, I'm glad there is some room for agreement here, and I think that it is setting us up for having more nuanced conversations about how to address policing in this country and the results on tuesday demand more nuance in that conversation i'm happy to be able to have it with you here we'll have more rising for you
0: after this Democrats were hoping this year would be the one that they turned Texas into a purple state. But GOP victories across the state further cemented the party's 28-year grasp. Governor Greg Abbott took to Twitter on Tuesday, writing, quote, Tonight, Texans sent a message that they want to keep the Lone Star State the beacon of opportunity that we have provided over the past eight years. Voters didn't just cast their ballots for candidates, but rather the issues they
1: care about, key policies on abortion, border security, and legalizing marijuana, were just a few issues that drove Texans to the polls. Here to talk about the outcome of these races and the role Texas could play in the 2024 presidential contest is managing editor for News and Politics at the Texas Tribune, Matthew Watkins. Matthew, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So this gap between some of the progressive issues, ballot measures that folks have voted on across the country and the Republican grasp on some of the states where those ballot measures passed, places like Kansas, places like Florida, places like uh, Texas, is fascinating to me. And I wonder what you make of it and whether or not you think the GOP is going to start embracing some of those policies substantively to really cement their hold on these areas.
5: Yeah, you know, I mean, I think Texas is a place where obviously you can't put abortion directly on the ballot in the way you can in some other states, and as we've seen. And what that has meant, I think, has largely been a good thing for Republicans, because we saw in the polls even before the election that there are there is a group of people who consider abortion the most important issue in an election. But that actually ranked lower than a lot of different issues, such as um Uh, The economy, inflation, uh, even even guns in in Texas ranked higher in in the kind of listings of the most important issues. And so what you found was a majority of Texans do support some sort of abortion rights, but it wasn't enough to swing the entire political dynamic in the state. Hmm. And and Republicans, you know, we even saw really about a quarter, according to some exit polls of, of people who say they support abortion rights still voting for Greg Abbott in the governor's election, the the Republican candidate.
0: Yeah, O'Rourke has made this go of it, you know, several times in various contexts now um, and was very much celebrated or or platformed at a a national level on magazine profiles. He he, he felt confident enough to even make the run for president. Um, Another another defeat for him, you know, without any track record of actually pulling off Uh, the wins in these elections, you know, what is, does his future hold anything at this point?
5: Yeah, you know, it's a really good question. This is the third time he's run for office in the last four years. He ran for Senate in 2018. He, of course, then ran for president, as he mentioned, and then he lost this race as well. That's three straight losses. The first race went pretty well. He came very close to defeating Ted Cruz, lost by less than three percentage points. The last two races, not as well. And it does seem like some of the shine has worn off. But You know, I wouldn't expect him to completely disappear. Will he run again? It's hard to say. I I, I doubt he will anytime soon, but I think he'll continue to be a presence in Texas politics, continue his push to turn Texas blue and continue to be someone that Democrats in this state turn to as someone they know can energize their voters, raise money and do other things that this party needs to do if it wants to have a future in this state, you know, competitively.
1: We've been talking a lot about Myra Flores uh, in the context of the Latino vote, and it seemed like she was a bellwether for Republicans' success with that, that demographic group. Of course, uh, she's now lost her race. Can you provide any insight into what you think happened there?
5: Yeah, you know, I mean, that was a race where it, that was going to be a tough win for Republicans. It's, it, the, the district uh, voted pretty heavily for Biden in well or would have voted if it had been a district at that time in 2020 it was a newly redistricted race and so i don't think it's a big shock that she lost the margin that she lost is obviously a big disappointment for republicans but what they did do is they continued to kind of hold the 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 uh in the improvements that they made in south texas in 2022 they didn't build on them they didn't you know add a net number of seats But the kind of complete Democratic dominance in South Texas, a heavily Hispanic region, uh, was still not there this time around. And I think that's a sign of that something that Democrats need to be concerned about moving forward.
0: Uh, what about Greg Abbott's? Uh, you know, let's talk about his uh, his policies. He's been a very, uh, you know, like DeSantis, kind of national Republican, very conservative, kind of textbook, extremely conservative uh, political positions that he's taking that he's articulating. Um, you know, that was that was eno- that's working for him in Texas. Uh, does he have a chance at a greater national profile moving forward?
5: I think that's the question that a lot of people are asking right now. And it's really hard to say, of course, you know, we know that it's very possible, maybe likely that President Trump um, will will enter the race soon. Um, But I think if you look at Abbott, maybe with the exception of DeSantis, it's hard to find someone, a Republican who had a better night on Tuesday night. Uh, uh, across the country, the, the message was maybe falling short of experta- expectations for the Republican Party. But Abbott, I think, surprised people with that double-digit margin of victory last night. And I think he can make a compelling case of saying, you know, I have these conservative policies that the Republican Party wants, but I don't have the drama of a Trump-like figure or some of the other Trump-endorsed candidates he saw around the country who who maybe fell short of expectations. And, and that could be his case. But DeSantis is obviously a big, looming figure And Trump is a big looming figure. And I do think there's still a big challenge for him if he wanted to, say, run for president, that he would have to overcome those. And, you know, I think it's a very big question as to whether he could.
1: I mean, another pitch that I see conservatives making some of these more Um, less Trump-aligned conservatives, I should say, making that Democrats don't seem to be paying that much attention to is the idea that they preside over states that are very welcoming to businesses, uh, that have good standards of living, uh, that make it easy for you to, you know, build where you'd want without the zoning restrictions, and basically the more uh, unregulated environments being good for commerce. You hear that a lot out of Texas politicians, Florida, and I heard that a lot out of um, Carrie Lake as well. Do you see that as driving Driving some of the appeal of the conservative candidates in these areas. And do you agree that you haven't seen much in the way of um, a rejoinder from Democrats?
5: Yeah, I would. I mean, I think that the the Texas economy is strong compared to the rest of the country. That has been true for quite a few years. And that is something that Abbott has really touted and talked about. And it is something that the Democrats didn't have a lot of good answers for. If you were in Texas and you were watching the political ads Coming across the screen in the run up to this election. It was a lot of advertisements trying to pin that to O'Rourke to Biden over issues like gas prices and inflation and things like that. That is really where Abbott wanted the conversation to be and seemed to be successful in, in, in making that case. Uh, the other thing is immigration, though. He has really hit Biden hard on immigration through the migrant busing, through other efforts to secure the border, You know, taking things into Texas's own hands. And that is another area where I don't think the Democrats have a lot of great answers other than criticizing what the Republicans are doing. And I think a message has been sent from voters at least in Texas and maybe elsewhere, that just saying this isn't a problem or trying to kind of whistle past the problem is not a great solution for Democrats moving forward when you talk about the economy, when you talk about the border and things like that.
0: Very interesting. Matthew, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Next week on Rising, Andrew Yang will join us. We'll get into everything midterms with the leader of the forward party. You won't want to miss that or any of our other post-election coverage. We'll finally get some answers on Arizona, Nevada. Hopefully, fingers (laughs) Fingers crossed. crossed. Uh, We'll be back same time, same place. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never
1: miss any content. And for those of you who prefer to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. All right, bye-bye.
0: Thanks for sticking with us this week. See you later.